Good morning, Lumpala. Good morning, Jonas Hoko. So today is uh, Sunday, the 16th of May. Thank you for offering some more Dhamma reflections. So today's first question is a question someone sent regarding the relationship between Kama and uh, Anatta, non-self. Um, more precisely, the question was about how does how we create Kama. Is it all? Does it always feed a sense of self, or is it possible to create good Kama? which doesn't feed a sense of self. Well, a sense of self is, is created through thoughts. <clears throat> and thoughts are karma. So it's like the idea of uh, enlightenment, <clears throat> of being free of uh, karma is, means that you no longer identify with the five khandas, the changing conditions of the, of the sensory experience that you identify with. And the conditions, you still experience the conditions, but your relationship to them is one of understanding wisdom rather than a personal identity. So it's a very important question actually because, you know, the law of karma is about sankharas, about conditions, about phenomena. Phenomena or in Pali we say sankharas, conditions, the born, the created, the formed, all these words are about conditions that their very nature is change. And Nietzsche and Dukkarata in terms of, you know, the three characteristics that create an equality among all conditioned phenomena. They are all impermanent, all not-self. They're anatta. They're, they are what they are. They seem like a self when we grasp them. Uh, and so we create a separate sense of a a separate person, a personality, a personal karma, uh, personal appearance, views and opinions uh, that change from one person to the next. And all this is done through ignorance of Dhamma. Dhamma is not karmic. The Dhamma that we take refuge in is not a Sankara. Uh, we tend, we don't take refuge in sankharas because that, that creates this delusion that comes from ignorance, from not understanding, not penetrating the Four Noble Truths with wisdom. We create uh, this sense of separation and self, which is all about karma, about me and mine, what, what I do, what I say, what I think. And what I see here, smell, taste, touch, and, and uh, that creates this sense of sakyaditi, a separate person, a separateness. Sankara, by attaching to them out of ignorance, we create this, this alienation from Dhamma. We, we're no longer knowing the reality of this moment, but we're 
caught in the illusion of time, of personality, of views and opinions, of cultural conditioning, of our own thought patterns, habit patterns, of thinking and believing and and creating views and opinions that, that come from our own confused mind. So clinging to conditioned phenomena is always very confusing. As long as we, you know, cling to it, then we suffer, and that's the first noble truth. We don't know we're clinging, that's the point. You know, the, the awakening message of the Buddha was to wake up to the clinging of suffering, to unsatisfactoriness, to impermanence. <clears throat> because it's done out of habit, not out of wisdom, not out of understanding. So when we talk about Buddha or awaking, the awakened one, uh, it's not a person anymore. Buddha is not a person. It's not a separate form that, that has a personality. You know, when we take refuge in Buddha, we're not taking refuge in the memories of the sage Gautama, the Buddha. We're taking refuge in the here and now, the reality of awareness, and it's with awareness that we can actually recognize the suffering, the causes of suffering. That's part of the first noble truth, the causes of suffering, to understand them, to understand the causes. You, you, have, to, you have to really accept the, the, that the present moment is like this, whatever its quality, whatever its feeling might be in the present moment, it is the way it is. So when we talk about karma, that's cause and effect, that's, you know, everything that born is born must die, everything that, everything that begins has an end, anything that's created has a death. And, uh, you know, this is just the, 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 karmic conditions that we identify with. So if we don't have a self, maybe the self isn't what we think it is or what we believe it is. You know, that's all illusion. And by investigating uh, the desires that, that arise in consciousness, you know, then we began to see how we create, uh, you know, out of fear, out of desire, out of hope and expectation, wanting things we don't have, not wanting things to be the way they are, uh, wanting to keep something, you know, a condition forever, wanting, for example, wanting to live forever is, uh, you know, is a desire because uh, that that's uh, based on ignorance, because what you identify with cannot live forever. Maybe with modern medicine and modern science and so forth, we can extend the lifespan of individual human beings, but that, that doesn't really solve the problem, because the ultimate reality is that 
and that what is born must die, you know, and, you know, it's time span, it can be variable. So Ananta is, you know, it sounds to the thinking mind like an annihilation of the self. You know, there's no person, there's nothing, it's, it's just empty nothingness, a void of emptiness. And, you know, when we, we logically hold on to the concept of anatta, you end up with a kind of nihilism or annihilationism. Uh, because what we, you know, what we're concerned with in daily life experiences with our self as a person, our physical health, our views and opinions, our ability to get along or not get along with others. Uh, you know, so we, we're constantly, you know, self-conscious, we're shy, we're, we're, we have anger, we get annoyed, we get frustrated, we, we, get, we, we feel resentful because we're not respected the way we should feel we should be. Uh, we're not acknowledged for the, all the good deeds we've done in life. We can be, you know, offended or, or uh, resentful about life in general because, uh, you know, we're identified with something that we're not really. You know, we try to glorify the human form and glorify the personality. You know, that, that we do through, through creating illusions about people, about heroes, about sages, about messiahs and so forth. We create out, out of thoughts. These are thoughts that are karmic conditions. They arise and cease. Trying to hold on to a thought for any length. You know, just a pronoun I. It's gone in a, in a, vanishes in a millisecond. As soon as you think it is gone. And yet, you know, we, or me, what about me? Ajahn Samedro, do you respect my views? Do you respect my life? Me as an Ajahn, as a Buddhist monk? What about me? And even though I emphasize, because the, the, somehow the, the pronoun me is, is uh, somehow very powerful sense of separateness. Because you are, you're over there, Ajahn and so forth, but I'm here, it's me sitting here talking like this. And so, you know, but when you observe this sense of me, it's a habit pattern you've developed from childhood. And so when you learn language, when you, when you, when you're conditioned to believe you're a separate individual with needs and desires and, and should be respected and should be appreciated for, because you're about individual human rights and all that, because these are very important to me to be, to feel secure and safe in the, in the country I'm living in or in the society that I identify with or the type of Buddhism that I've trained in, you know, to feel me as somehow 
something within another group is is all based on separation, definition, ignorance. So with Ananta, rather than being annihilation, it's it's it leads to fulfillment, to perfection, to Dhamma. It's not a not a something to grasp as a as a kind of doctrine, Buddhist doctrine that you believe in. You don't believe in anatta. <clears throat> you know, some Buddhists I know talk about, they absolutely believe that there's no self. And, uh, you know, that, you know, I understand what they're saying because they, they, the Buddhists said there's no self, so they believe that. But belief is also a condition. We're grasping teachings from scriptures from teachers, no matter how wise those teachers might be or those scriptures might be in their manifestations, you know, they're still all teachers, all scriptures are sankharas. So when you, when you let, when you see the, the, when you recognize or realize, it's the realization of suffering by grasping even the best belief will somehow let you down in the end you, because it, it doesn't get to the source. Like the scriptures, the suttas of the Theravada Pali tradition, they're pointing at reality. They're not, they're not claiming to be reality itself because words, scriptures, things written down, have to depend on sankhara, on language, on writing, on concepts to to be to express. You can't express anatta and describe it with words. You know, you can't find yourself as a sankhara when you when you're mindful. When you're not mindful, you operate from the the basic position, I am this body, I am this personality, I am, I am a Buddhist, I am a, a man, I, you know, with your national identity, racial identity, gender identity, are all conditions that you grasp that you may not recognize are the cause of your suffering. This blind grasping. Sankaras so themselves are what they are, their nature, you know, whether they're good or bad, evil or saintly. All the conditions are impermanent and not so. <coughs> so when we try to, to just live in a conditioned realm, <clears throat> by trying to annihilate negativity or evilness or wickedness or criminality or violence. And when we just try to, to get rid of it, we aren't getting to the source because we're operating from, from bias. We're not operating from wisdom. And so, you know, because we haven't come to the source, the ultimate reality of being is here and now. It's Dhamma, perfection. So your true nature 
you know, this is not taking it personally, it's perfection. But if I say this to an average person, your true nature is perfect, they look very bewildered by that because we tend to operate from the view of my, my problems, my desires, my uh, faults, my weaknesses, my selfishness. Uh, all these are ways we, we describe ourselves as a person because we see ourselves only through the perceptions of filtered through conditioned phenomena. So we, you know, this investigation is to explore conditioned phenomena. Is there any condition that begins that, uh, that never ends? Is there eternal time? Is time meant to be eternal in the sense of once it begins, it goes on forever? No way is that possible. You know, you can create uh, an image, objectified time as eternal, you know, eternal happiness. You can, you can objectify, you can make it into an abstract idea. But no matter how wonderful you create, the wonderful conditions you create, there's still the very nature is impermanent as well as depression, self-hatred, self-aversion, self-blame, blaming others, uh, fear, hopes, desires, wanting things, not wanting things, is to be investigated, not to be suppressed or resisted. So in terms of action and speech, it's about karma, physical karma. So, you know, to do good, you receive good. To do bad things, you the result is bad. Do good, receive good. Do bad, receive bad. So this is just to, to, to investigate uh, this, this realm that we're living in, that we identify with. If you're going to find happiness as a person in a society, in a family, in a monastery, is to do good as a person. Keep the five precepts and be honest and don't tell lies and obey the rules. And, and this is good karma. This is karmic. And in, in, in worldly life, in, in the world that we live in, the societies that we identify with, if we do good, we, we, we create a sense of security, of self-respect, and, and, uh, and people begin to, you know, can trust us. Just like the five precepts for lay people, you know, those are rather important. You know, they're karmic, yes, they're about action and speech. But, you know, to, to respect life, not to intentionally kill. And, and that creates a, a kinder, more respectful individual person. And uh, then to not tell lies, 
you know, if, if you're a liar, nobody trusts you. So, so you know, it's the, you know, the present political situation that you read about in the news and everybody's lying. And, uh, and so who do you trust? You know, because there's, there's no sense of moral integrity. It's all political power struggling and views and opinions and right against left. And, and, you know, it's views about religion, about Jews, about Israelis, about Palestinians, about, uh, you know, Sunni and Shia Muslims, about Catholics and Protestants about Mahayana Buddhists and Theravada Buddhists, you know, endlessly the divisions, the separateness, create a sense of, you know, that if they're not with us, they're against us. If they don't agree with us, they're our enemy. So the conflict on the condition realm is, is hopeless. You know, it's just, you can find, you know, as you use reason and logic, at least, you can, uh, find compromises, you know, if you're willing to compromise on issues that are just personal issues or, or political issues. But they, just like uh, uh, sexual uh, integrity, being honest about sexuality, being so that, you know, if you're if you're a monogamous in a monogamous marriage and you're unfaithful, and that creates disappointment or anger in the in the person that feels you've lied to them, you've cheated on them, and and that sense of being cheated on and lied to and misled and deceived feels the individual with anger and resentment. So on the level of of uh, action and speech. You know, right speech, you know, they talk about um, freedom of speech now. We have a right to and freedom to say anything that comes into our mind. And so people say terrible things. And then you become bound by political correctness where you're not supposed to talk like that. And then, you know, you're not supposed to preach communism in a democratic society and, and, uh, and uh, you know, you've got all kind of, you're not supposed to make racial slurs or anti-Semitic statements, it's politically incorrect and yet racial slurs and Marxian communism and, and uh, all kinds of lies are about free speech. I have a, I have a right to tell lies. It's free speech. You know, it's taking this, this idea of free speech to absurdity where, you know, you just get confused by it. You're afraid to say anything because you might offend, somebody might be offended by, by what you said or said in the past. But so, you know, is there any way out of this? this uh, speech problem in, in modern society and in the world that we live in, in the families we live in, you know, is to at least try to adhere to the, the five precepts. The Panchasila is a good guideline for behavior and a physical behavior and speech. You know, they're not 
imperatives, moral imperatives, their suggestions are there to help us to, to relate to situations in more skillful ways. Then there's right speech, which is, is you know, not, lie, not intentionally lying or cheating or deceiving others. And that leads to trust. You tend to trust people that, that are honest. And, uh, and if once you have a reputation as being a liar, you know, that can follow you the rest of your life. You can't believe him or her because they, they, they're, they're liars, can follow you as a, as a belief for the rest of your life. People see you as in, in, that, in those terms. They grasp those terms, they project the, the, the concept of liar onto you even when you're not lying. So on the level of conditioned phenomena, it is an endless problem because this very nature is unsatisfying. You know, how can you be satisfied with things that are unstable, changing and uncertain and not, not have any real soul or ultimate purpose or reality. You know, so the aim of the Buddhist teaching is pointing to reality itself, which is Dhamma here and now. It's not about Dhamma, some, some reified version of Dhamma that we create in our minds. Admittedly, the the word Dhamma is a word, you know, so it's not to hang on to the word, but the word itself it has to be let go of. So there's just this awareness, conscious awareness here and now, which is empty of self. But are you unconscious? Do you, does your consciousness cease when you're not attached to anything? Do you become, do you die? If, if consciousness dies all the time, then once you let go of the five khandhas, you're dead. You know, the logic is there. But is Dhamma, the word Dhamma itself is, is a convention, but it's a pointer at here and now, this awareness that we rest in, abide in, that is what you might call our true self. And it's impersonal. It's not like I claim it as some kind of personal separate self. I'm back in the, into the, into the delusions of avicca or ignorance in which I create myself, my consciousness as, as an Ajahn Sumedho consciousness as opposed to yours. That's, that takes conceptual proliferation, thought projections and, and beliefs, but it's not the way things are. That brings me to another question that's uh, related, where someone was pointing to this perception from talking about consciousness as impersonal, and it seems sometimes we're trying to we're trying to dissolve ourselves into some sort of larger impersonal consciousness. That's exactly what we're doing. 
and that's liberation. Impersonal consciousness is freedom. It's perfection, where, where the personal consciousness, the, the ego, the sakaditi, the separate self is, is just a fraught with fear and, and anxiety and resentment. You know, and, and, and as long as the ego, you know, as long as you believe in your ego as yourself, you're going to suffer in your life. You you can't help it. You're attached to something totally unsatisfying and unsatisfactory and untrue. So the dissolution of self, separate self, is peace. You can call it peace or freedom, liberation. And what's left when there's no separate self? You realize this, this is, this is here and now, it's not created, you don't create uh, a non-self. You know, that's uh, totally impossible. You can't create anatta. You can believe in a, in a, in a concept of anatta. And what does that take to, you know, and, uh, you know, the idea of you're, you're kind of letting go of everything and you become nothing. Uh, you become, you know, like a, like a, a zombie or some kind, you imagine some kind of vacant nothingness that is rather frightening when you create such images a vacuum of nothingness, a black hole, where you, you're still conscious within a black hole can be, you know, the epitome of hell, of the Vichy hell, of the lowest, most miserable hell realm you can imagine. <clears throat> but if you let go of everything, you know, the, the Sakya Ditti is a real, Delusion, you know, it's not. There's when you observe, when you, when you, when you witness the separate self, the ego, as it arises and ceases according to conditions, it's all over the place. You know, just you know, one moment you're happy and life is wonderful. Next moment you're depressed. You want to kill yourself. It's just you know, and then. You, you receive a, a reward and you're happy and you lose a, a million pounds on the market and you you want to jump off a building you know it it's <laughs> that you know that it's so unsteady uncertain dependent upon so many other conditions that you have no control over how can you control all the conditioned phenomena in the universe you know, that's megalomania. That's madness. You can't do it. Even though some people try, like dictators and emperors and, and uh, demagogues, you know, think that they can, you know, that they're divine and God, and they can control the universe. That is madness. That's just creating 
these illusions of a separate self that's in control of everything. And that is bound to, to be a terrible disappointment because, you know, dictators get assassinated and demagogues die. And, and uh, you know, the, no matter how all the illusions you create about how perfect you are as a separate self, you know, that's, that's a total delusion. It's, it's a creation based on ignorance of the way things are. Where the Buddha is pointing to the way things are, not to what you want them to be or think they should be as a person. You know, as a person, I want to live in a monastery where everybody's in harmony, the monks, the nuns, uh, everybody's practicing Buddhist meditation seriously, where they keep all the Vinaya rules properly, where uh, standards of cleanliness are respected, and we're well supported by a faithful lay community. And, you know, I can create a, a perfect uh, monastery in my mind. But it's, it's, it's how, you know, the ideals of how things should be is a delusion because things can't be what they should be. They are what they are. And right now, you can only feel the way you're feeling. Whether you want to feel this way or should feel the way you're feeling is, is, is not the point anymore, is it? It's that you're actually feeling like this is a recognition that that which is aware of the feeling of the moment isn't changing. The feeling changes according to, to the experiences that change. Experiences are changing. But ultimate reality doesn't change. So what do you want to take your refuge in things that are very uncertain, unstable, that lead to madness? Because if, you know, the, the world we live in is a kind of crazy madhouse of views and opinions. We consider, you know, that we're reasonable, normal human beings, you know, those that have education and, and have liberal mindsets and are democratic and liberal thinkers, modern thinkers with reason and logic. We, th we think if everybody was reasonable and logical, then all the problems would be solved. But to expect everybody to be reasonable and logical is, is not possible. That's not going to happen. <laughs> because people can only be the way they are. And in, in, as much as I would like to be reasonable and logical all the time, my feelings that arise aren't always reasonable and logical. <laughs> but I'm aware of them. There's awareness of the, the irrational emotions or lack of reason that arises or fears or, or desires that, that arise. There's awareness of that. That awareness is conscious awareness. You know it's like this, there's knowing. But you, you see that by attaching to these conditions, 
and like habit patterns are are inculcated in us when we're young children, infants. So we're culturally conditioned, biased by our culture, by uh, all the cultural identities, religious, social identities that we have, that we acquire when we're quite innocent children. We just accept, take on what what our parents tell us is the truth. We don't question it till we get in our teens. Then um, you know. Then we we believe in the in what we're told. What's right and what's wrong. What's good and bad. We don't question that. But as you grow up and you develop and you get educated, you become educated to a certain degree where you you start using reason and logic. Then you start questioning a lot of things that you were told were reality when you were an innocent child. You know, say, you know, very devout Christians can become atheists as they get older because the religious conditioning is a belief system. You have to believe in the religious doctrines that, that you're, you're supplied with when you're a child. And some people never question them. They just take that as uh, for granted as as ultimate reality. But but the Buddha said, investigate belief. What is what is a belief? You know what is reality, and what is the difference between belief and reality? What is re real right now for all of us is that we're Conscious, we're aware. And you can't grasp consciousness. Try to find it. Try to, to see if it's something you can grasp hold of and, and, and identify with, with words. But it's here and now, and that's what you are. We're all experiencing consciousness, which is not conditioned. Consciousness that we that we identify with out of ignorance is the sensory through the senses, and they're in the body. You know, so you have, uh, you know, eyes, ears, nose, tongue, body. You have uh, mental a mind that thinks. You know, so we can think, we can remember, we can project into the future. We create the illusion of. Time is our reality. Of space is our reality. We we operate in this in this space as separate entities. You know, because space gives this illusion of separateness. So my senses, like you know, observing, looking at you, Ajahn Asoko, I can, you know, in space, you're separate from from me and from my space here from me this physical form sitting on this seat is separate from you so so this is the reality we tend to believe in is the the sensory conscious experience that we we have as within these sensory forms sensitive forms but as we begin to be mindful Satipanya with wisdom, 
that which doesn't have a form can observe form, can witness the reality of a form arising, abiding and ceasing. So we, you know, as long as we're, where identity is dependent on grasping forms, then, you know, we, we grasp youth, we grasp uh, middle age, we grasp old age as very personal. We grasp our appearance, whether we, we look like a man or a woman, whether we're white or black. You know, we, we grasp all these identities because this is a consciousness that we only know as our reality is what we see, hear, smell, taste, touch, think and feel. But underlying all these senses, well, these, these senses would have no ability to operate if there was no consciousness. You know, if there was no consciousness, there'd be no space. If there was no space, there wouldn't be any forms. So consciousness is our refuge, is what we are, but it's not personal. It's not the body that the, the body's in consciousness, but consciousness doesn't depend and, and, and come and go according to the senses that, that diminish with age. You know, old age, your, your sensory experiences are getting weaker and, you know, they're, they're packing up, they're getting ready to die. So you can't see as well as you did when you were 20. You can't hear as well as you, you did when you were 25. <clears throat> you think more slowly. Your memory's not as quick and your mind's not as fast as it was when you were younger. And, but you're aware of this. If you take that personally, old age is, sucks, you know, it's really bad experience <laughs> because, you know, I can't, you know, I can't see as well. I have to wear glasses all the time. I have to read with a magnifying glass. My hearing depends on mechanical hearing aids that have, depend on batteries. <laughs> and, you know, I used to have perfect hearing, perfect vision. And when I was young and in the old age, I just, you know, I'm complaining, whinging about the natural deterioration of a human form. This is what it's supposed to do. But that which doesn't deteriorate is mindfulness. It observes the change, you know, <clears throat> changing vision is like this. If I start, I don't want it to be like this. I hate my life. I hate life has no meaning unless I see have twenty twenty vision till I drop dead in a hundred. That's wishful thinking. But let's face it, we're we're all going to experience the aging process. And the only thing you can say is that it's like this. And so you don't create suffering. You don't suffer from old age. And, and, and old age has its perks, you know, it isn't all, you know, if I complain about vision and hearing loss and, and, uh, you know, weakness, physical weakness and getting tired very quickly, you know, then I'm whinging about not wanting things to be this way. That's suffering. I'm creating that with my whinging habit patterns of complaining. 
But if I stop that and accept the way it is, doesn't mean I like it, but I'm, it's, it's not personal anymore. You know, somehow you're allowing the body to, to grow old as, it, as it's destined to be. You're not identifying with it or, or getting angry with it or hating it because it isn't, it doesn't live up to your perceptions of youth and beauty. And then, you know, you, you know, then you're going, you're bound to be a miserable old man or old woman. If that's what, if you don't learn how to wisely reflect on the way things are. Thank you, Paul.